This message was presented at the GYC 2010 No Turning Back Conference in Baltimore, Maryland. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. I'd like to invite you, I'm going to start with a little bit of an introduction for today's topic and turn with me in your Bibles to a familiar passage that every Adventist holds dear. It's found in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. And we know this well. And this is the concept that I believe establishes our identity as Adventist, as a Seventh-day Adventist church. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. And we know it very well. It's heard in evangelistic seminars very often. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring or with the remnant who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. We believe that we are the remnant church of Bible prophecy. Amen? I am a third-generation Seventh-day Adventist, and I love this church. Amen? I hold this church very dear to my heart, and as a minister of the gospel, there is, I believe, on earth nothing more precious than God's church. And we're going to be talking today about some, especially in the beginning of today's seminar, about some things that are happening within our church today um, that can be a little bit discouraging, but I want to, in the beginning establish some basic guidelines from the spirit of prophecy that has really given me a lot of encouragement. And this is from Signs of the Time, from uh, the pen of inspiration. It says, to God, the dearest object on earth is his what? Is his church. So we need to believe and we need to understand that our church, the Seventh-day Adventist church, is very dear to the heart of God. The quotation actually goes on and says, it is the apple of God's eye. It is the object of supreme regard. And we must remember this when we're talking about God's church, that we're talking about a very precious entity here on earth. With that in mind, I want us to think about, especially if you are a new convert, how many of you are new converts relatively within the last five years? 10 years or so, I baptized someone recently, and they were on fire. They heard the Adventist message. They joined the church, and it doesn't take long before they start seeing that God's church is not perfect. You know, they look around at people. In the beginning, they have rose-colored glasses, and they come in, praise the Lord, hallelujah, they get baptized, and then they spend a little bit of time in God's church and God's family, and they look around, and they're like, oh, no, what in the world is going on here? There, there's some problems. This person is... A hypocrite. You hear that before? And, and they look around and, and they start to get discouraged. And this is a concept that has helped me to understand uh, a little bit about God's church. And there's two terms that Ellen White uses. One is the church militant and the other one is the church triumphant. And this is the concept that is portrayed in this quotation, Faith I Live By 305. Has God no living church? He has a church, but the church, but it is 
the church militant, not the church triumphant. Now, she will go on to describe what she means by militant and triumphant. We are sorry that there are defective members in the church militant. While the Lord brings into the church those who are truly converted, now listen to this, Satan at the same time brings persons who are not converted into its fellowship. So I want you to picture this. Right now, during the church militant, it is comprised of both converted and unconverted people. It is a mixture. While Christ is sowing the good seed, Satan is sowing the tares. There are two opposing influences continually exerted on the members of the church. One influence is working for the purification of the church and the other for the corrupting of the people of God. Now, we're going to be talking a little bit about how we react to this concept of the church militant, and there have been different groups that have reacted in various ways. Now, I want us to note that, remember the parable of the wheat and the tares, that the disciples or the people in the parable said, why don't we take out the tares? And Jesus said, no. Remember that? And we need to remember that it is not our mission as church members to, go, to be going around saying, this person is a tear. He needs to be rooted out. Remember, I got to one of my church districts, and there was a group of individuals that were on an extermination endeavor within the church. They wanted to clean house. They wanted to hijack the nominating committee and get in there and just, just start doing a... Uh, should I say, uh, individual assassination of different individuals. They, need to, they did not belong in the church. We're told that that is not our mission and responsibility. Ironically enough, I, I said, this is not our place. This is not, our, this is not what we're here for. Now, I'm not talking about open sin. All right? I'm not talking about individuals that have done something, and we're not talking about church discipline. We're talking about judging motives. You're hearing me here this morning? And interestingly enough, these individuals left, and um, it's, it's crazy how sometimes revivals happen, because they left, and our tithe and offering went up, and our, <laughs> our, our church membership increased. And, and so we need to be careful of when we look at other individuals and say, you know, I'm better than this person. Um, sometimes the Lord wants to reveal some other things to us. And so this is what we need to remember when we're talking about God, God's church. It's uh, the church militant as well as the church triumphant. It's a mixture of both the wheat and the tares. Now, with that in mind, I want to talk a little bit from a historical perspective as to how we got to the place that we are today. In my travels, you go to different parts of the country, even here in the United States, and there are different shades of Adventism. Have you noticed that? I go to California, and they say, oh, we're California Adventists. (laughs) All right? And... There's, there's a certain uh, stigma some people ascribe to certain brands of Adventism. Then I go to the East Coast and say, they say, you know, we're East Coast Adventist, Midwest Adventist, or uh, Michigan Conference, Michigan Adventist. You hear that before. 
And, and so even within our church, within our country, and then you go to parts of Western Europe, and Adventism is very different in Western Europe. Australia. Then you go to Africa. And so there's quite a bit of diversity even within the Adventist church. And the question that I want to ask is why? How did we get to the place where we have all these different labels and, and brands of Adventism? And you go online and there's different, quote-unquote, progressive websites. And they say that we are progressive Adventists. And then other people say, I'm a conservative Adventist. Now, I want to go back a little bit and come to a little bit of understanding as to how we got to the place that we are today and look at a little bit of our history. And we know that in 1844, I didn't have a chance to change this word because, uh, anyways, it's eschatological, just a fancy word that some theologians use to describe end time. Okay, end time emphasis, end time beginning. We know that in 1844, our church began with an end time message. Amen? With an end time focus. And so this is our roots. And if you ever ask yourself the question, why are Adventists always talking about Bible prophecy and end time events? Well, hello, this was our beginning. This was our roots. This is part of our identity when we look, especially in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. So the Adventist church began with this very pinpointed Adventist or end-time focus when we talk about 1844. They believed that Jesus was coming very soon and that in 1844 began the beginning of what we know as the investigative judgment. Now, in 1888, something interesting happened in Minneapolis and soteriological, I can't even say that, but it's a salvation emphasis. So eschatology has to do with end time, soteriology has to do with salvation. So we began with an end time emphasis, then we had a, or a beginning, then we had a soteriological or salvation emphasis in 1888. Notice the term emphasis. It was not as though we did not believe in righteousness by faith in 1844. But what had happened is that we had gotten to the place where our gospel, Ellen White says, was as dry as the hills of Geboa. It got a little bit imbalanced. Not that Ellen White did not believe in justification by faith, but Jones and Wagner stood up in Minneapolis and confirmed and emphasized a belief in the gospel in righteousness by faith. And so that's what happened in 1888. Now, in 1960, something very interesting started happening within our church. What you'll find is that, unfortunately, our church is not immune to what is happening in culture or what is happening in society. Well, many times happen is that culture and society starts coming up with different ideas, and then it's only a matter of time, it seems like, that the church starts espousing some of these ideas. And so in 1960, uh, there was a soteriological turn, and we started going the evangelical way. I'll describe that a little bit more on uh, another slide coming up. And then we had the term conservative and liberal that started coming out. 
And there began to be these divisions within the church, and some people said that they were more conservative, and other people began to believe that they were more liberal. And then we have what we called in the 1990s, uh, what we had uh, described as the worship renewal and the secularization of Adventism. I have been in different settings where um, the worship service in the ideas of becoming more relevant have blurred the lines between what is secular and, and what is sacred. Okay, And so this was part of what, what began happening within our church. And this is the progression of what started to happen and uh, a little bit of an understanding as to why we are where we are today. There's something else that began to happen within our church as well, and it had to do with our educational institutions. We had in the 1990s an uh, explosion that happened around the world, and in, in 1960 uh, we had Loma Linda and Andrews became universities, all right? Uh, in 1980, this is relatively recent when you think about it in comparison to some of the secular universities. In 1980, you had Andrews doctoral programs that began to uh, come up in 1980. And then in the 1990s, you had a university explosion around the world in Adventism. Now, this is very important because once you have the development of the Adventist intellectual you start having questions that were never asked before. Because once you start going to the doctoral level, you start challenging some assumptions and some basic beliefs. And this is where a lot of different questions have been asked. One of them was uh, regarding Revelation inspiration, which came up in the mid-1900s. And... Uh, people would go down to the White Estate and they would look at Ellen White's writings. I had the privilege of doing that. And we had never really questioned our belief of Revelation inspiration before, but when you look at her writings, I uh, saw her actual handwriting on some of these manuscripts. You're able to go down there, check them out, and, and look at them and, and study some of her manuscripts. And you see uh, spelling mistakes, okay? Uh, some redundancies, some edits of her writing where her editor would go and say, this can be worded a little bit different way. And so uh, a, a lot of people that were doing their doctoral dissertations would look at Ellen White's writings and say, oh, we, we never looked at these before, we never questioned these before, and suddenly we're like, what do we do with inspiration? Because prior to this, people believed that it was verbal inspiration. In other words, the Holy Spirit would say... Uh, these words dictating to Ellen White, and she would write them, but obviously when you read her writings, it, uh, how can the Holy Spirit need editing? This, this posed some problems. And so th we have some very brilliant theologians within our church that are rock solid that have developed this concept of plenary or, or thought inspiration as by the White State, and so this is where some of our beliefs have come today. And uh, it's because of our university explosions around the world. And this is not necessarily a bad thing, but it does present some challenges and some questions that we have a difficulty answering. And then uh, we come to this part, all right? 
Now, I've broken down Adventism into four groups. There, you can say that there's more, but these are um, what I believe is uh, four basic groups within Adventism. All right, here's number one. Here's some theological divisions within our church today. We have what I believe is the majority of our church. I believe that the average Adventist sitting in the pew is a biblical Adventist. I believe that our world church, for the most part, is what I consider to be a biblical Adventist. They had the end time beginning of 1844. They believe in that. They believe in justification by faith, and they don't have the turns of the 1960s or the 1990s. And I take heart, as evidenced by our last general conference session, in which the world, with resounding support, for a literal six-day creation. Amen? And so this, this, when I looked at that, I said, praise the Lord, hallelujah, God's church on the majority are biblical. They believe in the Bible and spirit of prophecy. They, they believe in all these things. And this is a, a, a point of encouragement. Now, we have another group within our church, which I call the evangelical Adventist. They have the salvation turn of the 1960s, and it's based in evangelical theology, and it's essentially the reduction of Adventism to generic Christianity. I've talked with some of my brothers and sisters that are Adventists, and usually it works like this. They have a negative interaction with a local church or with somebody and they turn a little bit more evangelical, and it's basically a reduction of Adventism to justification. Now, I believe in justification. I believe in righteousness by faith, but they believe it is to the negation of some other elements of the gospel. Okay? And they believe in a minimizing of, of standards. Now, I, I will say here... Standards do not save you, okay? And that's a whole other presentation in itself. But standards do not save you, but standards is an important part of guarding us, all right? They're kind of like a, a fence that keeps us from falling. Like Paul says, I keep under my body and keep into subjection. So that's an important part of the Christian life. And so this group believes that justification is central and that everything else is minimized and not peripheral. Many times you'll hear this concept of them saying, uh, this is not a salvational issue. All right? Now, I believe that there are certain things that are not salvational issue. Us. Um, but I will say that there, that is not the, um, the attitude that Christians should have when we approach um, doing what is pleasing in God's sight. I don't want to get off track here. All right? Then we have, oh, I forgot to take these out. Then we have what we call generic Christianity, another group, and these are um, very progressive. Um, I had uh, one of my professors that uh, is pretty open, openly a progressive Adventist, and usually um, people that are more liberal in nature uh, or more progressive in nature are so uh, nice 
interpersonally. You know what the challenge is? That conservatives have good ideas with difficult personalities. You ever get a group of conservatives together? I mean, it's, it's uh, wow, it, it's, it's just very difficult. But liberals are individuals with, uh, how should I say, bad ideas, but great personalities, many times. And this, this professor, I would, I would love to sit down and have lunch with him. Uh, I can't say that about the conservative people that I, or, or I should say biblical individuals. Uh, I agree with them, but, but uh, hanging out with them would be a different situation. Uh, you understand me, okay? So, so don't equate character with theology. And I had a friend of mine that sat in a class and said, oh, he's so nice. And, and they espoused to the theology because they, it's hard to separate the theology from the person. But I have to challenge them and say, you know, listen to what he's saying. He, he may be a nice individual, but what is he saying? What is he teaching? You need to take the two. Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, we need to have both. I've known a lot of people that had the truth but did not have the right spirit. Jesus said, they that worship me shall worship me in spirit and in truth. The two are together. So there's some people out there, they are so bound up in the truth, but uh, they're unconverted. And then there's other individuals that uh, have the, maybe a more Christ-like spirit, but they don't have the truth. We need to have both. Okay? So this is our more uh, progressive individuals. And uh, I would categorize that these individuals in this category are more prone to believe in theistic evolution as well as um, uh, the, the nature of homosexuality as not being a moral issue. Okay, So th those would be uh, generic Christianity uh, in that category. And then I have this last category here, uh, what I call the separationist. All right, uh, they believe that the church is Babylon. In other words, these individuals have reacted to the concept of the church being militant, and they look at the quote-unquote apostasy within the church, and they become disenfranchised and say, I, I, I don't want to be a part of this. The church is, is no longer the remnant. We need to come out of the remnant. And uh, we have independent home church movements that are happening even within the United States and some parts of Australia and I believe even Western Europe and different places because they, they have the mentality that we need to separate ourselves from the major group. Now, um, it's ironic because when you go into some of these settings, they, they end up having many of the same problems that the church has too because the human nature is the same, all right? Okay, so these are the basic groups that I've gone. Now, we could perhaps give a few other labels. So we have the biblical Adventists, which I believe are the majority. We have evangelicals, which is a basic reduction of Adventism to evangelical theology. Then we have generic Christianity, which is our very progressive Adventist. And then we have our separationists, which tend to be, on the whole, very conservative, heavy emphasis on Ellen White, but usually have a very critical spirit toward the church and are not very constructive uh, in, in dealing with the remnant church as well. All right, so here's some labels that we many times throw around. Uh, you hear this before, moderate, I'm a centrist, uh, I'm a liberal, 
conservative, right-wing, left-wing, and we have what we call the extreme right. Uh, you have these labels that are thrown around. Extreme left, I didn't put up. Centrist, some of these overlap. Fanatic, you ever heard that before? You're a fanatic. And you'll notice that this is very, uh, very relative because I've gone in different settings and I go into like very, 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 very extreme conservative settings and they consider me to be a liberal, right? Then I go into very, very liberal settings and then I'm like ultra right. And so it, it's very relative when we throw around these, le- um, these labels and then you say you're a centrist, but a centrist relative to what? And so this is what we need to be careful of when we, when we talk about labels in that they're very relative. And when we look at God's church today, I want us to make sure that we stay on the ship. Amen? Don't jump off the ship. Remember Paul in that illustration? He says, if you stay on the boat, your life won't be lost. Well, it's an application. If you stay on the boat, you are safer than off the boat. And that's what we need to remember. And this quotation uh, gives me a lot of hope. The church may appear as about to what? As about to fall. In other words, from all human appearances, when we look at God's church, it will come to a point in the very end of time that it's going to fall. But it does not fall. I do not believe that we need to come out of the remnant and start something else. This is God's remnant. It's going through to the end. And even with all these different factions and divisions and and discussions that are taking place, we need to remember to stay on the boat. Stay on the ship. All right? Now, I want to look at some pointers here for the heart of today's presentation and ask the question, why are we divided? This is a very important question to ask ourselves because even if we believe as Seventh-day Adventist in, in name, there, there's some divisions that are taking place below the surface. And we're known as people of the book. And why is it? Okay, People have asked the question in evangelistic meetings, you know, why do we have one Bible? And then you look in the phone book and there's so many divisions, right? There's so many different denominations. But even within the church... We're people of the book, and yet we have some diversity. We have some divisions. And this is something that has really uh, irked or been some questions uh, arising into how we interact with the Bible. And this has been an assumption that many people have had when we approach Scripture. We say, all right, the Bible's here, and then the Bible projects its information onto me, and if I have the right methodology, if I approach Scripture in a certain way, if I practice good biblical methods of interpretation, I will come at objective truth. That's been a common understanding. So we have seminars on Bible interpretation. We have seminars on Bible methodology. Um, And I believe that those things are very important. But one thing that we have not talked about when we talk about Scripture is that 
not only does the Bible project on us information, but we project on the Bible presuppositions, assumptions, and, and biases as well. So when we interact with Scripture, there's, there's a relationship that is taking place. Not only do we need to have right methodology when we approach the Bible, right principles of biblical interpretation, but we also need to take note of the person that is interacting with Scripture. I think that there's this misunderstanding out there that if you're intelligent, now, don't get me wrong, I believe that intelligence can be a gift, but there's this common understanding that if you're intelligent or if you have a certain degree, that you are more capable of understanding the Bible than a person that is not. But as we'll go through in our study here today, we'll notice that there's a relationship between the two, between the person and Scripture. And I'd like to focus on these first two points uh, about the person, all right? And make the observation that when we look at Scripture, there's certain things that color our understanding of Scripture. And this is one fundamental reason why I believe that there are some divisions within our church. Because even though we approach the Bible, the person that is approaching the Bible has certain lenses. You ever do this before? You ever talk to somebody and you show them a text and either A, the text doesn't matter, or B, they interpret the text differently. And so you're showing them all these texts, but it doesn't matter to the individual because they're coming from a totally different perspective. They have different assumptions. Same Bible, yet they're approaching it from two different paradigms. And so this is what I'd like to talk about. And three things in our first presentation here today that impact how we view the Bible. And this is one reason why I believe that we have some divisions today. And the first one has to do with morality. All right? Now, when we talk about morality, notice I'm not talking about methodology. I'm talking about the person. And I believe that your morality impacts how you view Scripture more than anything else. In other words, how you are living. I want to make a point here today. You want to understand the Bible better than any time before in your life? Ask God to get rid of those secret sins in your life. Amen? That, that, that's the fundamental rock bottom basic because if we have sin in our lives, that will color our theology. That will color, I'm talking about cherished sin. So if you're cherishing sin and you're interacting with Scripture, you will come up with erroneous theology. That's the bottom line. Furthermore, you will come up with a theology that defends your lifestyle. And so that's the way that we work when, when we come at Scripture. And this is the, the bottom basic. You can have all the right methodology in the world. You can know Hebrew and Greek. But if you are practicing sin, cherished sin, uh, it will impact how you view Scripture. And so this is an important part of morality. And I like to 
a look at it case in point. Let's talk about the Pharisees. Uh, today, Pharisees are known in a pejorative sense. Uh, if I call you a Pharisee, it's not a compliment. All right? You say, oh, how dare you call me a Pharisee? But back in Christ's day, a Pharisee was the intellectual elite of the day. It was a compliment at one time, believe it or not. All right? And the Pharisees were, were brilliant. They had to go through a rigor of, of biblical knowledge and biblical understanding. From 6 to 10, they would memorize the Torah. The Torah is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. How many of you know a 10-year-old going around quoting the whole book of Genesis from memory? They knew the first five books of the Bible by the age of 10. The Pharisees were brilliant individuals. By the, uh, by the age of 10, they had memorized the entire Torah and completed what is known as Bet Sefer. Then you had Bet Talmud. Now the best of the best students would continue on. Bet Talmud meant house of learning roughly from age 10 to 14, the Bet Talmud. You would memorize the rest of the Old Testament. By the age of 14, they had memorized from Genesis to Malachi. They knew it backwards and forwards, and the best of the best became Pharisees. You're talking about brilliant minds, brilliant memories. Theologians, they would make our scholars today look like kindergartners in comparison. So I want you to think about this. From an intellectual standpoint of view, these individuals were more capable than any other individuals of their generation to recognize this individual. Are you following me? All right, so <laughs> who else knew the Bible better? These individuals had been taught it from their youth, and they looked face to face. This is what's baffling. They looked face to face with God himself. God. You know, if you shake hands with Jesus, you're shaking hands with God. I want you to think about that. You're face to face with God himself, and you don't recognize him. I mean, isn't that baffling? I mean, it just blows the mind. They, they had multiple PhDs, and yet they see Jesus, and, you know, the story, they kill him. They crucify him. So it shows you that there is something more involved in biblical understanding than intelligence. Amen? We, when we approach Scripture, we need to take account, first and foremost, our own morality, our own life, our own sins, our own sins, and so forth. This is a picture of where they believe Lazarus was buried. And I want you to think about this. We're told in Desire of Ages that the Pharisees were there. A man has been dead for four days. He is clinically dead. They know, they know he's dead. No, no doubt about it. And Jesus calls out to Lazarus. We know the story. Lazarus come forth, and Lazarus comes out, Jesus raises a dead man right before their eyes. At the very least, the Pharisees should say that Jesus is unique. 
Jesus is different. And they have the evidence walking around all over town. A man that has been dead, a corpse, is now alive. Now, I want you to notice the reaction of the Pharisees. John 12, verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Let's kill the evidence. And this is what I believe. It's not the lack of evidence, but the hypocrisy of our search. In other words, they were presented with information that conflicted with their own carnal desires, and so they're like, I'm going to kill the evidence. And this is what we need to understand when we approach Scripture and... uh, when we interact with the Bible, is our own hearts. Do we really want to know the truth, regardless of where it will lead? And that will impact how we view Scripture and how we interpret it. Jesus says this, Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And you do not remember. And then he goes on, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. So Jesus presents this concept of imperception when it comes to spiritual truths and spiritual understanding. Now, this is an important point here in the Beatitudes. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Notice that the element in being able to see God, Jesus did not say, blessed is the person that has an IQ above 130, because they'll see God. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. For Jesus, what impacts your spiritual perception is a purity of heart. And then we come to Psalms 14, verse 1, and notice this. It says, the fool has said in his where? Heart, there is no God. Many atheists say that I thought my way into atheism. They present it as an intellectual concept, But the Bible says that it's not an issue of of the mind. It's an issue of the heart. Morality. Aldous Huxley, he says, I want this world, and he's so open, he says, I want this world not to have meaning because a meaningless world frees me to my own erotic and political pursuits. Another person, I was reading a commentary, and he said, it's actually liberating that there is no God. It's liberating that we came from an evolutionary process because now I can do what I want to do. And so you see that really when we talk about these concepts, it's really coming from uh, a carnal perspective. Uh, This is from an unknown author. The atheist can't find God for the same reason that a thief can't find a policeman. (laughs) All right? And the bottom line is we see what we want to see. We understand what we want to understand. In John 7, 17, uh, the Bible tells us, If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. This is a very important passage when it comes to how we understand Scripture, in that intent is prior to content. And truthfulness in the heart precedes truth in the objective world. And so when we come to Scripture, one thing that really colors our vision is our intention. 
All right, steps to Christ. Well, let me skip this one for the sake of time. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, But if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost. Um, This is a very fascinating quotation in Great Controversy 599, which illustrates this as well. Many a portion of Scripture which learned men pronounce a mystery or pass over as unimportant is full of comfort and instruction to him who has been taught in the school of Christ. And notice this part. One reason why many theologians have no clearer understanding of God's word. Okay? I believe in good theologians. I believe in scholars. But notice this. One reason why many theologians have no clearer understanding of God's word is that they close their eyes to the truths they do not wish to practice. Did you notice that? In other words, their own morality colors their vision. And she says that one reason why they can't understand or have a clear understanding is not because they don't have the right doctoral degree, but because of their own personal life. They close their eyes to the truths they do not wish to practice. As understanding of the Bible truths depends not so much on the power of the intellect brought to the search as on the singleness of purpose, the earnest longing after righteousness. So this is the bottom line. If you are living up to the light that you know, And by God's grace, he is giving you victory over those secret sins in your life. I'm not saying that we don't struggle. I'm not saying that we don't fall, but that we're living a life of surrender. You will be able to have a clearer understanding of Scripture. Amen? This gives me a lot of hope uh, as, as a Bible student that, hey, I don't have to necessarily have the degree to come to a clear understanding of Scripture. That if I keep in mind my morality when I come to the Bible, that that will impact it much more than anything else. As we um, continue on this point, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9 and 10. I believe that this illustrates it very well. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9 and 10. What time am I supposed to close here? 10, 15. 10, 15, okay, so I have about 14 more minutes. I'll move along here. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9 and 10. And I want you to notice this very apparent notion about how we receive truth. The coming of the lawless one uh, is one according to the workings of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive a love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Notice that the reason why these people are deceived in the end of time is not because they did not have the truth or access to the truth or the intellect to understand the truth, but what does the Bible say? They did not receive a love of the truth, all right? And this is, when we want to make it a little bit more practical, is that, you know, how do you relate to truth in your individual life? How do you interact with it? And uh, that's an important thing we need to understand. All right, so three things that impact how we view the Bible. Number one, morality. And number two is experience. 
I think that all of us have, have a certain experience that we, that we carry with us when we interact with Scripture or we interact with truth. And I've known individuals that they go through life and then suddenly they have a negative experience. Perhaps they've interacted with legalism or uh, some fanaticism on one angle. And then what happens is that many times they swing the pendulum to the other extreme, and we call that a biographical theology or an experiential theology. In other words, you have an experience, and so that colors your understanding of Scripture. And I think that all of us are, in one degree or another, prone to have an experience that colors our theology. And this is just a part of being human. Now, when I did evangelistic uh, meetings or was a Bible worker, you, you know the hardest people to convert to Adventism? It wasn't the Catholics. Actually, Catholics make great Adventists. Um, but the, the most challenging one, and we did, I think, five evangelistic series in one year, and we only converted one of these from this particular uh, denomination, and that was the Pentecostals. And I'm not saying it's impossible, but it is difficult because once you've had the experience of speaking in tongues uh, you can show them so many scriptures but that contradict their experience but that experience was so real and so moving that they choose experience over scripture that's that's what happens and so this is an important thing that uh, plays a part, and there's something called uh, out-of-body experiences. Uh, this is a quotation from one of those. Grace was shaking with fever and terrible pain. Her body was just trembling as she was rushed into the hospital. As she immediately was ushered into the emergency room, the physicians gave her very, very little hope. Her blood pressure was dropping. Grace described her experience later. She said that as her blood pressure dropped and as she was very near death, it appeared that she was slipping out of her body it appeared to her that something unusual and strange was happening. It appeared that she was ascending to the ceiling. She seemed to be floating up to the ceiling. She seemed to be looking back at the physicians and the nurses that were attending her. She described her experience as a journey to the light. In fact, Grace said this, I began to feel the most incredible, warm, loving feeling. I was in this light, and there was a presence in this light. And uh, people have, they say that 7 million people in the United States alone claimed to have had what was called an out-of-body experience. And this supports the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. And so you can see how experience plays a role in all these things. And, uh, and I want us to go to a couple scriptures here this morning, uh, very quickly, about how experience relates to our uh, understanding of scripture. Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. Let's actually go back to verse 16. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. How does experience play a role in how we do theology? Second Peter chapter 1 verse 16. And Peter says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So here Paul, or Peter, for that matter, is making a point about how he had this wonderful experience with Jesus. It was real. And he uses this term. He says he was an eyewitness of his majesty. Verse 17. 
For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard the voice which came from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. All right, so Peter is basically talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. He sees Moses and Elijah transfigured before his very eyes. And this was, you know, an enlightening experience. In verse 19... The Bible tells us, and we have a more sure word of prophecy. Now, I want you to think about this. He has just talked about the Mount of Transfiguration, and he says that there is something more sure than that. That's the scripture. And so in Peter's mind, he placed the Bible above experience. All right, for the sake of time, I'm just going to go very quickly here. Um, But God would have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms. The opinions of learned men, the deductions of science, the creeds or decisions of ecclesiastical councils, as numerous and discordant as are the churches which they represent, the voice of the majority, not one nor all of these, should be regarded as evidence for or against any point of religious faith. Before accepting any doctrine or precept, we should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord, in its support. So if you have an experience, we need to go to the Bible and test that experience by Scripture, not the other way around, and say, hey, if I have an experience and it contradicts Scripture, we had a faulty experience. And we need to uh, remember that. Luke chapter 24, I want to go here very quickly, because I want to make sure that I cover all the material here this morning. Uh, Let's look at Jesus, Luke chapter 24. This is known as the walk to Emmaus, and it's a very puzzling situation. There's two disciples walking on the road from uh, Jerusalem to Emmaus. They're not well-known disciples. Uh, One of them is not even named. The other's name is Cleopas, and they're discouraged. They're downtrodden, and it says in verse 13, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all the things that had happened. And so it was when they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Now, I want you to picture this. They're going from Jerusalem to Emmaus. What is the problem? Jesus is dead, or they think that Jesus is dead. Now, I want you to ask yourself this question. Why would Jesus go through this process and walk up to them and veil his identity? And he says, what are you talking about? Does he know what they're talking about? Yes. The most efficient way to solve this problem is to come down, you know, shed a little heavenly light and... uh, Perhaps some angels singing say, I am Jesus. Put out his hands and they fall back dumbfounded and say, hallelujah, Jesus is alive. And they run back to Jerusalem. But instead, Jesus goes to them and engages them in this conversation and says, what are you guys talking about? Notice this gets very painful. Verse 18, then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to them, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things that happened these days? And he said to them, What things? Jesus could have revealed his identity over and over again in this conversation, but he just kind of eggs them on. He keeps asking them these questions. And then they go on and talk about Jesus. And notice in verse 25, 
after their conversation, and he says to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? Notice the concern of Christ, what the prophets had spoken. Look at verse 27. This was why Jesus did not reveal his identity right away. Verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the what? All the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He gave them a Bible study. So in the mind of Jesus, he wanted their faith to be grounded not in the experience, but in Scripture. So you see, in the mind of Christ, the thing that had the utmost priority as far as the foundation of our faith was Scripture. And then after he gave the Bible study, he was basically done. He was going to walk off. But they, they grabbed him, and then later on they, they realized who he was. And so Jesus places the priority in that order, that Scripture is to supersede these other things. I think I already read this quote. All right, we come to our last one here. We're going to be able to cover this. All right, three things that we impact how we view the Bible and gives us an understanding as to why there's so many divisions today within the Adventist church. Number one, morality. Number two, experience. All right, number one, we need to take count of our own personal life. Number two, we need to make sure that our experience is not superseding Scripture, but is corresponding with it. Number three, our source. Or notice I said our sources. Now, there has come within our church today um, this concept. All right. Uh, when we do theology, we have the Bible plus other sources. And it's known as this concept of, uh, I'll be coming to it in a little later, but uh, we have this concept of theistic evolution. Okay, theistic evolution basically believes that uh, God used evolution um, in, in the process of, of creation. And so it's a, it's a melding of Bible and what is known as you know, the, the latest science of today. Now, the question that I had when I heard about a theistic evolutionary Adventist, sounds kind of interesting when you put all those together, doesn't it? All right, a theistic evolutionary Adventist, which, believe it or not, you know, we, it exists in the church today, okay? A theistic evolutionary Adventist, and I have to ask myself the question, why or, or how? Or, or why meld the two? It's like, it's like trying to meld Nazism with Adventism, you know, evolution and, and, and Adventism. And I came to the understanding that the reason why theistic evolution came to be within our church had to do with this concept of, of our source or sources. And it's known as the Wesleyan Quad, Okay. This is a, a thing that you'll see on some of the blogospheres and progressive Adventist websites. It's known as the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Now, a Wesleyan quadrilateral, it, it, quad is four, and they are actually taking it beyond what Wesley intended. Uh, I believe that Wesley uh, did not intend it to go in this direction, but I'll tell you how it's being used today. Wesley 
believed that scripture was preeminent, and he said that some of these other things play into how we do theology. But when we talk about the West End Quad, they say that there are four sources in how we do theology. One of them is scripture. One of them is tradition, or what we've done in the past. The other one is reason, and with reason is science. And then the other one is experience. So when we come to an understanding of any doctrine, we need to take into consideration these four. And all of these four have four equal votes when it comes to theology. Now, I will say that Wesley intended for Scripture to be the predominant one, but what what happens is that, let's say that reason comes up with a concept of evolution that is antithetical to Scripture. And so they say science has a vote, says that evolution began over billions of eons ago, and so they take that and then they read Genesis 1, and they say that Genesis 1 has to be interpreted symbolically or allegorically or that one day did not really mean a day but it meant eons and that it's actually a metaphor describing you know back to the archaic mind of those generations they're trying to describe what happened and so you see that when when these individuals come at scripture they're coming from a totally different perspective because of the sources and this is a reason why it can be challenging discussing topics with people that use this methodology of the Wesleyan quad. Because for them, in doing theology, uh, you're, you're coming from different perspectives or different data. And the data that you use in theology is very, very important. Now, I will say this, that if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, the only conclusion that I've come to personally is that there's no other denomination in the world that uses the Bible as the sole source of data for theology. No other denomination. Now, I will say this, there's no other denomination in the world that has a more brilliant, logical theology than the Roman Catholics if you use scripture and tradition. You see, the data makes a difference. If you use scripture and tradition as your data, you logically must be a Roman Catholic. We've actually had very brilliant Protestant theologians go and become Roman Catholics because they study the theology and the Roman Catholic theologians have done a brilliant work brilliant. It is so logical, so consistent, all the way down, down from the philosophical angle, all the way down to ethics. It, it just, it's just so coherent. And he looked at Protestant theology, and he tried to use scripture and tradition, and he's like, this is incoherent. Because we, we claim sola scriptura, but we have all these other things that are not biblical. And so he said, I'm going to be a Catholic. So, logically, Catholicism, scripture, tradition, But I'd say, if you want to use the Bible as your sole authority, there's no other denomination than Adventism. And this is what I believe is like at the heart of why we come at different conclusions, because we're using different sources. So when we 
approach Scripture, they have the Bible tradition experience and reason. Now, we have this concept of sola scriptura. Very, very important. It's the Bible and the Bible alone for determining every doctrine, every practice. All right? Now, we do use other things, and this is what we call prima scriptura. Now, sola scriptura, when we're doing theology, when we're talking about things having to do with spiritual matters, we believe in sola scriptura. Now, we have this other concept uh of prima scriptura, and that means scripture first. Which means that when we're talking about things that are not necessarily spiritual or not necessarily explicitly found in God's word, we say, I choose scripture first. In other words, if science says one thing, and it doesn't contradict with scripture, we believe in science, we have some of the finest medical institutions, and so forth, and we believe that it's incompatible with scripture, we, we, we adopt it, we practice it, but if any time it contradicts scripture, we say, I choose scripture first. All right? And this is, this is where I've come to. Uh, now, there's, I have more questions than answers when it comes to certain things, especially when it has to do with some of these questions in regards to origins and so forth. But I say, you know, I don't have all the answers now, but by faith, I'm going to choose Scripture first. And I believe that if time lasts long enough, that Scripture and science will be in harmony. All right? And if I die or we don't live long enough here on planet Earth, that I believe that when we get to ultimate reality in heaven, that science and scripture will be in perfect harmony. Amen? And so that's what we need to believe. But until then, we, we need to go with this concept of prima scriptura. And so when people come and say, you know, what about all this data and dealing with geologic columns and all these, all these fossils and so forth, I say, hey, I don't have all the answers to that, but I choose scripture first as the data that I will use. All right, um, I want to go very quickly here. Oh, I'm going over. Okay, uh, let me read one last quotation here. Um, just review three things that impact how we view the Bible, morality, experience, and our sources. And I want to uh, close with this quotation for 5 Testimonies 136. I believe that this time is coming in the future. It says, when the religion of Christ is most held in contempt, when his law is the most despised, then should our zeal be the warmest and our courage and firmness the most unflinching. And listen to this. To stand in defense of the truth and righteousness when the majority forsake us. To fight the battles of the Lord when the champions are few. This will be our test. At this time, we must gather warmth from the coldness of others, courage from their cowardice, and loyalty from their treason. I believe that in the end of time, all of us are going to be tested to the very core of of who we are as to what is going to be our final authority. And uh, I pray that all of us will have that firm resolve 
that uh, for every point of doctrine will demand a plain, thus saith the Lord. Let's uh, bow our heads as we, as we close this session here. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you regard this church with supreme love and that it is the apple of your eye. We believe that this church will go through to the end of time, but it's not the church triumphant just yet. It's still the church militant. We pray that you'd help us to stay on the ship and to use Scripture as our only source and our final authority. We pray that you bless and keep us to that end, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. This message was produced by GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. GYC seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians in contemporary contexts. To download or purchase other resources like this, or if you have been blessed by GYC and would like to donate, visit gycweb.org or email info at gycweb.org. You could also reach us via mail at P.O. Box 3786, Ann Arbor, Michigan, 48106. This recording is licensed under Creative Commons. This means you can copy and share it with anyone you like. Please attribute this recording to GYC wherever you reuse it. And keep in mind that resale and alteration are strictly prohibited.